0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And it's just turned 4 o'clock and thanks to Acting Up. It's Joan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6 o'clock with Tuesday Home Time. Today, Kevin Bracken at the IMARC conference earlier this morning. Nasser Mashni back from a family visit to Palestine. Dr Margie Beavis from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War with a new campaign, Quit Nuke. Bruce Francis preparing for a visit to Palestine. And finally, Palvember with Jessica Morrison from APAN, Australian Palestine Advocacy Network but first Mr Kevin Healy and following Kevin an update from the IMAC conference venue one of our 3CR supporters broadcasters
2: A week, Jane Lister, when congratulations to the sorry, are protectors of our freedoms for their precautionary, proactive policing policy, stepping in, well, stomping in to prevent the blockade IMART lot from blockading IMART, arresting, bashing, practising equine policing. Ah, yes, what are the charges? We asked our regular police commentator, Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig. You know, like, you know, like, protest, like, you know. So protest is a crime, Bernie. Like you know, no, like you know, like yes, like. Whereas one of the great corporate resource spokespeople conceded, protest is not a crime as long as it's totally ineffectual and has no impact whatever on whatever the long-haired commie greenie wooden worker and iron lots are protesting about. And congratulations also to the great great minds who are our forces of law and order for removing their name tags because the law that says they must not remove them does not apply in that most serious of crimes protest Oh, and a week that was update. Last week we reported on our esteemed airlines complaining that the privatised airports were abusing their monopoly powers by price gouging, the airlines said, something we'd never have foreseen when they were privatised, but sadly for them, that important protector of neoliberalism, the workers must be more productive Commission came out this week and declared the ripping off price gouging did not require government intervention. The current ultra-light regulation regime was working a treat, it said, and the privatised monopolies agreed. Is it working a treat, they chorused, or is it working a treat? After years of the Caring Business Class Party and the great practitioners of neoliberal economics pleading for the Socialist Party to return to its 1980s-90s working-class roots, when former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawke himself and the world's greatest-worst ex-Treasurer Paul transformed the true-blue Aussie economy by making the public purse responsible for caring employers' costs of caring employing, realising that the Milton freed Capital man-inspired policies of U.S., of the U.N., of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Ronnie Reagan, and Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Maggie Thatcher, were spot on. And what finer role models than Maggie Thatcher and Ronnie Reagan? That the road to socialism lay in def- in defanging evil trade unions and demanding, quite properly, that if lazy, avaricious workers wanted a massive, crippling pay rise of say half to one percent, then they had to sacrifice the odd crippling work practice won by the fangs of evil unions over decades, crippling practices like holidays, weekends, and nights off even ultra-expensive safety measures, and worse still, wages. Well, in a speech today, the Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo, Anthony All Being Uzi, revealed his latest campaign to destroy capitalism and fight for what's left of evil unions post-nuclear hawk and Paul, and the lazy avaricious workers they represent. Like Nuclear Hawk himself and Paul I understand that building the future Means we must first and foremost Be in the business of creating wealth The Socialist Party is proudly and resolutely pro-growth True quote He told a caring business class gathering in Perth And Anthony has this brilliant transition policy For workers in the coal industry Renewables I hear. Well, no, no, coal Coal and more coal. See, with the forecast growth in wind power, quote, direct quote, no embellishment, True Blue could be exporting 15.5 million tonnes of coking coal to build these turbines. The road to a low carbon future can be paved with hundreds of thousands of clean energy jobs, as well as supporting traditional jobs, including coal mining. And to Frankie's business credentials, sorry, sorry, socialist credentials, Anthony said the wealth generated by the business of creating wealth should be distributed fairly. And we can be sure his caring business class audience would, would assure him it already is being distributed very, very fairly. All the workers for whom Anthony fights his guts out might say fairly ordinary Just as a casual thought, Anthony, the left wing leader, leads one to ponder what the right must be like. (laughs) The modesty of the week award to US of big supremo Donald Trump or the poor. Well, we could bestow the award in perpetuity because we can't imagine him ever losing it. This week, for after evil Russia negotiated a deal with good loves, liberty, freedom and democracy Turkey over northern Syria, and it seems silly to consult the Syrians on these things, and as the Turkish train killers passed the US of train killers going the other way, Donald then announced, well tweeted, that the whole thing was down to him and only him. The negotiating parties had nothing to do with it. Although really, he has to share the award with himself. After declaring he had personally, well as Commander-in-Chief, personally overseen the assassination of Isa's big supremo Abu Bakr al Dedi, if indeed he is now dedi, but after thanking Russia for allowing flights over or whatever, Russia said it didn't and hadn't killed this and had killed the same al Dedi a couple of years ago. And Donald said he had died, this time, a coward whimpering and crying and screaming. Worst whimpering and crying and screaming ever, ever. But the coward died, Donald also said, by detonating a suicide bomb. Not that there's ever any inconsistency in Donald's tweets. Anyway, Donald, your Modesty of the Week Perpetual Award is on its way, and we look forward to next week's winner. Last week we heap praise on our media for profit barons, or media for profit barons, for implementing their "your right to know" campaign. Their selfless fight for the common good, concentrating us, not them, on the unspoken corollary: your right not to know. And note the "your right, not our right." Us out here being fed by them in there, in their boardrooms, determining what we should be fed in the spaces or time between the ads, which are their raison d'etre. An example of what we absolutely must be fed, that Lord Rupert of Sin report on that suppository, or, sorry, repository, repository of truth, the Institute of Public, Very, Very Private Affairs, attacking local councils, which pass resolutions that the government signed the international prohibition of Nuclear Weapons Treaty, supporting a True Blue Aussie initiated body that just happened to win the Nobel Peace Prize, the institute of declaring the essential universal truth. These councils are more interested in defence than rubbish collection. And rubbish is the last thing we'd expect from the Institute of, all the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin for that matter. And Lord Rupert and the Institute of realised the Nobel Committee got it very, very wrong. Although they'd agree we have to ensure dangerous, dangerous regimes like evil Iran and evil North Korea do not have nuclear weapons. Back the international prohibition of nuclear weapons in evil Iran and evil North Korea treaty, and then good, good, biggest nuclear arsenal, the US of, for instance, could sign the treaty, and then Troubluwazi would sign the treaty. See, just try a bit of lateral thinking and what progress for peace we can make. And as a contribution to what we need to know about our right to know, the Wapping Sin also devoted a feature page, so-called Think Peace, from journalist Peter Gresta, whom people thought to have freed when he was held hostage in Egypt. And Peter wrote, My organisation, the Alliance of Journalists Freedom, agrees we urgently need to update the way we protect journalism in our unworkable, messy legal code. Clearly, any system that criminalises the kind of journalism that exposes issues that are genuinely in the public interest without damaging national security is a problem having earlier written that the public interest defence does not define or even mention the word journalism but focuses on what the person is doing implies that anybody who meets the standard set out in the law is able to use the defence Now, this is very interesting, because the same Peter Gresta, passionate defender of journalist freedom, might explain why he doesn't consider Julian Assange a journalist, and therefore worthy of support from the same groups who supported him. Bit confusing that, but I'm sure Peter has a reasonable and logical explanation, because many thought Peter would be the first to leap to Assange's defence. Still, if Julian Assange is sent to the US of, despite the concerted and dedicated efforts of the True Blue Aussie government and Peter's lot, sent to face a fair fair trial, he'll be back on the streets by as soon as 2186 a fair trial for the serious crime of telling us what we don't need to know, but on the other hand, an unfair trial threatened by the evil unions for what caring employers hope we don't know, the alleged repeat, alleged, underpayment of workers, wage theft, the unions call it, demanding huge fines and long jail terms for caring employers. What a travesty of justice, to coin a cliché, that would be. That assumes caring employers deliberately underpay workers when not one, not one caring employer has ever deliberately underpaid a worker. It's all down to the difficulty understanding very complicated awards whose complication leads to underpayment 100%, overpayment 0%, emphasising even more just how complicated it is. Like ultra-expensive and caring business class important people with huge expense accounts favourite, Indeed, the social set generally's favourite, Neil Berry the Wages, who obviously would have no idea he owed his staff millions and millions of dollars. He's too busy doing his job, keeping the corporate high-flyers and social set generally happy. As the sundry Chambers of Profits argued sensibly, criminalising breaches of workplace laws would set a disastrous precedent. They went for the smelling salts. Spot on. So finally, let's concentrate on real crime, like the criminals trying to prevent the great resource companies going about their business. Good afternoon.
1: And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. Next on the program, unionist Kevin Bracken. I spoke with Kevin at 9 o'clock this morning. Since early this morning, you've been down at the Melbourne Convention Centre... What was it like for you, Kevin? Well,
3: I was down there. There was protesters there outside the IMR conference, International Mining and Resource Conference. I just got there on the corner of um, Spencer Street there on the edge and there was a line of protesters and there was like, police on one side and the protesters on the other. And um, the police started pushing them all back and next thing they brought the horses in, I think they wanted have grabbed a few of the people who were there. So it was... Pretty heavy-handed, really, for the amount of protesters that were there and the amount of police were there, and, and to bring in the horses too. And then Jerome, who was on the loudspeaker, and he's probably about six metres away from where the lines of police were. About ten police just broke the lines, broke through the lines, grabbed him, and dragged him back inside there. So I don't even know what they did him for.
1: Is that the I don't only?
3: We near the, the protest. Well, I don't know whether they grabbed other people while they were. Um, I'll, while I push people back or not, but he was the only person that I saw grabbed. Yeah, at the time he wasn't, I don't think he was doing anything at all except be allowed anyway.
1: It's very confronting though when the horses are moved in, isn't
3: it? It is, yeah. Especially when they turn around and they fracture you from behind, a bit over over the top for sure. Because I mean, there wasn't as many protesters, you know, as what they would have liked to have had. And I think the, the police would have um, outnumbered them anyway. Anyway, they have, they have um, made it a little bit difficult for the people who are um, attending the conference and they can't really just walk in as if nothing's happening. So at least they know people aren't happy with what's, what's going on there and full march the um, courage of the young people who are there protesting.
1: Why is this protest happening?
3: Well, it's the biggest mining and resource companies and the finance companies as well who are in their meeting about how they're going to divide the world up. So when they're also probably the most anti-worker and anti-union companies around too. Rio Tinto, BHP, you know, the resource companies. So I think it's a good thing. I'm just a bit disappointed that the unions didn't make a bit more of a link with the protesters than what they did.
1: You'll be down there tomorrow again?
3: Yes, yeah, so tomorrow we're going to be there because Oceania Gold have got three speakers down there. One's on a keynote address about mining and the social licence. So I think they should probably be the, the last company that should be speaking about a social licence because their biggest mine in the Philippines, the Dibio, has been shut down for three months by uh, people's blockade there. And it's probably um, fitting too because of the 41 resource com- you know, big mining operations that are happening in the Philippines, theirs is the first one to come up for the 25-year renewal. And so this is going to be a bit of a test case for other, other mines that... Um, actually open up over the, next, well, over the next period. This is the first one that's come off and it hasn't got its a, a permits to renewed to, for another 25 years. And the only thing you can save it is a, is a uh, letter from the President's office. And they've already sent their first request back as it's been incomplete. The local governor of Navajo Vescailles has ordered that the mine shut down and the company uh, has refused to listen to it. They've tr- still tried to operate. There have been, I think, three or four injunctions about attempts at about having the barricade lifted and they've been unsuccessful each time. So we'll be there at 12 o'clock tomorrow down at the Convention Centre and um, it'd be great to have people down there supporting the protesters.
1: Just exactly how do you get there for people who want to go?
3: Well, I think probably the easiest way is just to get to Southern Cross Station. There's probably one tram stop down just over the river and turn right at the um, convention centre, directly opposite the um, casino from Spencer Street there. And there's the trams, the 109 tram goes pretty close too.
1: Now on Friday you'll be down at Princess Pier for the annual Alan Whitaker commemoration and this goes back to 1928. What was going on at that time? In
3: 1928 there'd be the the waterfront unions have been under attack by the Prime Minister Stanley Melbourne Bruce. He introduced the collar Act. Because of unions have rejected it, they've been out of work for probably six weeks. They'd also opened up the um, ship owners, started another SCAB union, which is the uh, Permanence and Casuals Union. And so after about six weeks, the waterside workers went back to work. At that time, they'd been lining up for work for a week. They hadn't had one, not one of them had, had a job because they only got jobs then after all the scabs were being picked up. So there was a bit of, of a um, scuffle on the pier and as I walk walking back, police opened fire. They were estimated about 90 shots were fired and four of them were shot. So obviously one of them was firing into the crowd. And Alan Whitaker, who was a uh, return Gallipoli veteran who was shot on the first day of the Gallipoli landing, was um, mortally wounded and died on Australia Day, ironically, in um, 1929. So it's marked the start of a depression for people in poor Melbourne and South Melbourne, and um, just part of the advertising is, is some of the newspaper clippings that came out in the years after, you know, where children were starving. And the thing is that, you know, people need to remember that anyone, any one of those workers could have joined the SCAB unions and got jobs, but they didn't, they stuck together and um, paid great sacrifices, and their families paid big sacrifices too, but they stuck together by their family, their community and their friends. And um, at the end of the day, the scab union finished up and the waterside workers went on to become what what, what was the MUA today. Good lesson for people to to learn about the the sacrifices people made to look after conditions of work and their, their own workmates.
1: Who's going to be down there apart from the waterside workers tomorrow on Friday?
3: We've got the local politicians, Martin Foley who's for Albert Park and um, the member for uh, McNamara. And um, we've also got Frank Vincent and Michelle O'Neill from the, AC, the ACTU president. Also the students from Albert Park College because the um, Gatehouse of Princess Pier now is now known as the Aluminica Gatehouse and it's part of the campus of Albert Park College and they've, they've taken part in the last two years' commemorations that have happened there.
1: What's Frank Vincent's connection?
3: Frank's father was a waterside worker and he grew up in, the, in uh, Port Balmain in the 30s and 40s and uh, he's got like, first-hand memory of what it was like to, to live in Port Balmain at the time. So he's been a big supporter of it and because he was a judge, he had access to review the uh, coroner's inquest about Alan Whitaker, and he found that um, Alan had been shot not from the front but actually from behind and um, that he was actually a starving person. That's probably what killed him in the end.
1: It was a terrible time for people, wasn't it? I don't think most people now realise just how bad it was.
3: No, that's right. And um, it's probably a good thing for us to take notice about what people have gone through in the past to make sure we have a decent country to live in. And, you know, it's incumbent on people to be a bit more active, to do their best to make a better world because um, fast approach approaching this is a rich man's country again,
1: Exactly. What's the best way to get to Princess Pia?
3: Get the 109 tram down to Port Melbourne and then it's a walk along the waterfront, along the promenade to Princess Pia. If you just get off the off the tram and then head west, then um, you'll get to Princess Pia. It's probably about a 200 metre walk away from the um, Port Melbourne. Well, they probably heard the themselves going down the stairs.
1: <laughs> and that's noon on Friday. Okay, Kevin, thank you and good luck with it all.
3: Thanks very much, Dan.
1: And that was Kevin Bracken. And the other voice you heard just a moment ago was Jacob. You heard Kevin talking about what it was like there early this morning. Jacob, you've been there all day. What's it been like for you?
0: Uh, it's been uh, quite an intense and exhilarating experience. I mean the numbers haven't been as large as we would like but we've managed to successfully you know, blockade um, a number of um, entrances and we've managed to actually disrupt and shame a lot of the mining executives who have come by today.
1: Just emphasise once more why people are protesting.
0: I think one of the biggest reasons um, that we're protesting is a lot of people are coming here, you know, off the back of you know Extinction Rebellion, uh, the school strikes. A lot of people are concerned about climate change. Um, a lot of people are concerned about this climate crisis going, where the future is very uncertain. Um, and some of the companies that are gathering at this conference are the likes of BHP, Rio Tinto, who are some of the who contribute to some of the biggest carbon emissions. Uh, in the world. And then there's also the whole issue of extractivism. The fact that a lot of mining companies, um, get away with making deals with dictatorships, um, to push undemocratically their mines, um, which exploit workers, dispossess indigenous, um, people from their land. Um, I think those are some of the main kind of reasons I think people are kind of pressing today. And there's also the fact, um, that, you know, this, this conference is essentially greenlit, um, by our state government. A whole bunch of corporations who wield a massive amount of power in society. Um, and so in a small way, um, this is a way of demonstrating our power and actually putting forward an alternative message to the, um, to the corporations and the polluters who are attending this conference.
1: Was there any time that you were able to stop people going through any of the entrances?
0: We, I think it's probably unlikely that we stopped much, many people, but we did, you know, make it hard enough for them to enter. Some people might have, might have not entered, but we managed, to, um, it got to a point where most of the entrances were actually locked up by the police. Um, and then we only had to worry about free entrances that we blockaded. We also had some good solidarity from, um, the union, trade union movement, because, um, Victorian, um, the trade union movement had actually held a health and safety conference that was happening during the day. Um and as a sign of solidarity, um there were over I think four hundred to eight hundred um forgot the number of delegates who are attending, health and safety delegates. Um but there were a number of sort of mining magnets um and attending to the conference who try to go through um go try to go through the trade union um health and safety conference because they're in the same venue and they were forced out um because they couldn't a lot of them couldn't show their union cards. Hmm.
1: Not a good idea. <laughs> Great. What's it been like with the police?
0: Um, Well, it all started around, I think, 7am. We actually just planned to do a bit of a test kind of blockade. Um, We weren't really going, we were waiting for sort of numbers to build up, so we just sort of got ready to sort of blockade the entrance. I mean, by that time, there were pretty much uh, no one from the conference um, was attending yet, because I think a lot of them were coming a bit later, around 7.40 um, to 8 o'clock. Uh, and then, as soon as that happened, the police started pushing us around, started hitting us with bat- batons. Um, I had the personal experience um, where I tried to stop someone uh, from um, being arrested. Um, who, uh, and then there was an the experience um, where uh, a rally or an or organizer of the blockade of the blockade was just simply addressing um, the, the crowd, and then a, uh, a group of Um, police just went and grabbed him and um, shoved him, took the megaphone out of his hand and pushed him to the ground and took him into custody.
1: How many arrests do you know?
0: As far as I know, there's been over 20 arrests and there's been a number of near arrests. Some people who sort of got arrested but not really um, because there wasn't some sergeant or something to process the
1: arrest. How dangerous was the capsicum spray they were using?
0: Well, we unfortunately had a first aid team on hand that attended um, to any people who were impacted by pepper um, um, pe- pe- spray. But, yeah, it was quite dangerous.
1: What about the legal team? How did they get on?
0: Um, the legal team was very good. Um, they pretty much followed up with everyone who got arrested, make sure they collected details, make sure they were safe. Um, I think, you know, we had a really well-organised structure for, a, for the legal team. What's... And they gave us a lot of support, et cetera, and so on.
1: Was there any interaction between the police and the demonstrators? Like, were you given warnings saying you're not supposed to go here, if you go here you'll get arrested? Was there any of that going on?
0: Oh, well, from my perspective, no. <laughs> in fact, they pretty much just pushed us and said, move! <laughs> Usually, um, you know, I've, been, I've actually been involved in Extinction Rebellion protests in the past, and the, the level of repression is much higher than what was... Um, Exhibited by, the, uh, exhibited by the police during the Extinction Rebellion protests.
1: How many horses were there?
0: Horses, um, there were like six to seven police horses. Um, there was actually a woman, as far as I know, who got trampled by a police horse and might be, still be in hospital or, yeah.
1: Yes, they talk about cruelty to horses in the, the racing industry and I'd like to know how they train those horses to do those actions that they do at demonstrations.
0: Well, I don't have any insights, really special insights, but I think, you know, the use of police horses has always been, you know, to break up protests um, in a really sort of unsafe way. Um, and I think it's completely unacceptable that police have the power to even, you know, send police horses to break up protests.
1: Is it a debriefing period for you now, Jacob?
0: Yeah, we've had a debrief recently, and so we plan to come back um, with um, as hopefully as large numbers as we had today and attempt the blockade conference all over again tomorrow morning.
1: And Indigenous peoples are going to be part of it tomorrow. The people who are, yep. who are, they've
0: already been. Um, we had a, we had an opportunity to hear from a lot of um, First Nations activists. Um, yes. They've come all the way from remote communities and elsewhere to you know speak about their stories and to talk about you know how mining has impacted on their on them, on their communities.
1: So, if people are interested in coming and might be a bit apprehensive about coming, what would you say?
0: Well, I think you know this. Um, this is a protest that's oriented towards mass participation. Um, if you're not, um, if you're not keen about being part of the blockade, you can always stay on the side. Um, you know, help um, the first aid and the. And the, I don't know what this team—the catering team or whatever—there's a, there's a team that's basically serves as support from the protesters. We're giving um, who are giving um, protesters water, uh, giving them drinks, um, you know, food, snacks, all that kind of thing. If you can't be part of the blockade, then yeah, just you can you can still come and be part of the put up a sign, um, put up a placard, um, and also or hold a banner.
1: And got two more days to do it.
0: So Wednesday, 6 a.m. Um, every morning at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Expedition
1: Centre. Okay, thanks, Jacob, and good luck with it all.
0: Yeah, thank you very much.
1: And that was Jacob, who's part of the team from Friday Breakfast, giving us a report on what it's been like at the IMAC demonstration down at um, Docklands. I think it's Docklands. Yeah, this afternoon and all day today. And as he said, it starts tomorrow morning, 7 o'clock. If you can get there, good idea. I'm speaking now with Nasser Marshi, Palestinian-Australian activist and member of the team here who present Palestine Remembered on Saturday mornings at 9.30. Nasser has been to Palestine many times, but four teenage boys, brothers and cousins, two fathers... Now, so where were the mothers, daughters and wives? Does that mean that this was a a special event?
4: It was a special event. My wife and my daughter have accompanied my sons and I on on a number of other occasions to Palestine. In fact, I've never taken my sons without taking my daughter. But my brother has a, um, his daughter just turned seven years old. And so the agenda that I had created for, for the boys was, quite extensive and you know we were on the road for 12 to 14 hours a day so dragging a seven year old along would have been uh, inhumane in the extreme also the boys the four boys have less than three years between each of their births and have been kindergarten together right through to uh, late stage secondary schooling so they're more closer to brothers than cousins it was a great opportunity for them to bond as uh you know semi-adults if you will my nephews had never been
1: so i imagine there's an- A mixture of excitement, apprehension?
4: I think the boys thought, you know, even though my sons had been, I think my nephews and sons thought, you know, we're on an aeroplane, so it's a holiday. There'll be plenty of pool time. That was quickly uh, thrown out the window. I mean, the exercise from our point of view was to give them a big dose of a top-up of Palestine intravenously.
1: What was the first view of Palestine? You've been on a long plane trip. I'd imagine you've on, been on a bus. When do you first see Palestine?
4: You see Palestine coming in from a man in Jordan, from the other side of the Jordan Valley. So you descend into the into the Jordan Valley and on the Jordanian side and you you see the Jordan River. On the other side you see East Palestine or the West Bank of the Jordan River. Then you enter the Jordan transit zone and have to deal with the uh, immigration on the Jordanian side, bus across to the um, Israeli checkpoint immigration, if you will, and uh, go through the inhumanity of having, you know, a blue-eyed, red-headed teenager, ask you where you're from, why are you coming, where was your dad born, what you're planning to do there, why are you coming, where are you are from, what's your father's name, where are you staying, have you got relatives here, where are you going, why have you come.
1: Do you think they might have been a bit phased by having six nationalities there?
4: <laughs> Look, the, the reality, and this is one of, one of the most beautiful things from our perspective as, you know, Australian Palestinians is, you know, they, we've lived our lives and live our lives on, on stolen land, land that was never ceded to Aboriginal land. And we are an other here. And we're an other because we we've got, you know, funny names and a funny religion and funny skin colour. The reality is, being in Palestine and being at an Israeli checkpoint is we're not another. We are an it. It's us. So um, six nationalities, as handsome and uh, charming as we are, we're one amongst the masses. So there's a, an instant feeling of home as well as a feeling of solidarity amongst the others that are standing in line waiting to be processed.
1: Once you got through that first checkpoint, where was the next stop?
4: The first stop was Jerusalem. So to give your listeners an understanding we left Melbourne at well the plane was scheduled to depart around 830 p.m on the Friday we were in a um, in at our hotel in Jerusalem after navigating the Israeli checkpoints and about an hour drive in a, a bus to East Jerusalem some 26 hours after we left not much sleep on the plane but we were there just after around 2 p.m so a quick shower and a freshen up and then we walked straight to the old city.
1: Explain what it looks like, what, what you feel like when you see it.
4: For me, I get, well, you can't help but be in awe of the old city, the dome, you know, the gold dome, glistening. For me, I get pain because I've seen how rude, and I'll say that, I think the word is rude, how rude the Judaization of Jerusalem has really hurt the the history, the heritage, the the taste, the feeling of Jerusalem. I hurt for, you know, the days that my father spoke to me about as his childhood. He was born in the twenties, you know, running around the old streets, you know, playing marbles with um his schoolmates, you know, and they'd go to school on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. He'd go to mosque on Friday Somebody go to temple on Saturday, another person would go to church on Sunday, and on Monday they'd play marbles together. I never had a concept of anybody's religion other than the day that they chose to celebrate their God.
1: You know? Do you have any relatives yeah. still there?
4: Yeah, we have uh, quite a number of relatives still there. Most of um, my father's family, though, were during '48 and '67 ended up in the United States. Though many of them retained... Palestinian uh, identity so national uh, identity so they sort of they're refugees in the sense that when they come back they can only stay within the West Bank not even Jerusalem anymore and um, they sort of spend you know a year away and back for two months nine months away back for a month three years away back for two months type.
1: what's the separation like in Jerusalem between the old or the east and the west
4: it is brutal in Easterism in the old city you walk around and there's, there's well the the military is omnipresent, the police the the amount of weapons the, the cars military cars police cars but when you walk around the old city you you can still see that it's old uh, there's you know religious Jewish men walking Christian pilgrim uh, and women Christian pilgrims everywhere uh, as well as you know traditional Arab Christian and Muslim worshippers, but also merchants, etc. When you go into West Jerusalem, it's just a city, a brand new city. What was, what would have been old West Jerusalem, or pre Nukba, pre 48 Jerusalem, was long since bulldozed, and the views endeavoured to replicate some of the architecture, but you, you can't help but notice the difference between five year old, ten year old, or fifty year old stone, and you know, stone that's thousands of years old. It just doesn 't look the same whilst the architecture might be similar, the age of the construction material exposes the lie
1: and what's the economy of the old city look it's in it's
4: in a dire situation today Jerusalem's natural uh, well from a Palestinian perspective Jerusalem's natural customer base is in fact all of the West Bank, but now with the um, wall everywhere and Permits being denied, many or most of the Palestinians in the West Bank are unable to enter East Jerusalem. So uh, that customer base is denied them. For a long time, Palestinians of north, northern Israel, the Palestinian citizens and residents of the State of Israel used to, um, in an act of solidarity, share buses and drive, you know, almost two hours from Nazareth and the Galilee, down to Jerusalem and en masse, you know, by their week's supply or whatever it might be and, and drive back to their homes. That's becoming increasingly harder to do and it's actively discouraged by the Israeli authorities. All part of a continuing slow ethnic cleanse of uh, Israel from the it of its Arabs because they want those shops to close, and when they close, they'll see them, as they've done in Hebron.
1: Were are the particular places that the boys wanted to visit?
4: The Dead Sea was the only one that, you know, they all sort of commented on, uh, other than the, the Dome of the Rock and the Uxa compound. But I don't think, you know, <laughs> with the greatest respect to them, I didn't really give them much choice. I said, here's our itinerary, this is what you're going to do.
1: Let's go through that itinerary. Where, where was next?
4: Our first day was all about... Um, Deriasin and um, uh, Al kastal and Deriasin, mostly for the very uh, the most public or most well-known pre-NAKBA or during NAKBA massacre in April 8, 1948, when that village uh, by Irgun and Stern gang Jewish terrorists killed all the inhabitants or most of the inhabitants, excuse me. Uh, left enough alive to send some north, south, east and west to flee to neighbouring villages. And we're given the message, make sure you tell everybody when we get there. If they don't leave, this will, this, what happened here will, will happen to them. So we took them to Diriyasin. And ever since I was a child, some, you know, almost 50 years ago, our house has always been called Diriyasin. And, uh, we continue that tradition today. So it was very important for our kids to see where the Nakba began, if you will.
1: What remains well, Darius Sin
4: now is uh, nothing remains in fact, there's one building that's left from the old Darius Sin it's now a mental uh, hospital, a place where they keep uh, very heavily mentally damaged um, people, I presume Jews because it's in, in, in West Jerusalem. The city itself i don't know what it's called now, but it's a very religious community there. There are no Arab, are no Muslims or Christians in what was Darius Sin now.
1: Was Bethlehem on your trip?
4: Yes, yeah. So we went to Bethlehem, and um, we took the kids, obviously, to the birthplace of um, Jesus Christ, to uh, Mary's Grotto, where she breastfed uh, the baby Jesus. And we went to a very famous Palestinian restaurant called Aftim's there. Um, He was a a 48 refugee from Akka and makes the world's best hummus and falafel. So if you're ever in uh, Bethlehem, you must go to Aftim's. Um, and really, really something well worth seeing. We went to the Banksy hotel. I'd never been to the Waldorf hotel there in, in Bethlehem, and my initial thoughts on the um, on the Banksy museum was I was apprehensive in the fact that it was it a um, you know occupation pawn, if you will, with somebody profiting from um, the tragedies that have befallen the Palestinians. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. The hotel is completely staffed by Palestinians, by residents uh, uh, of Bethlehem and the surrounds. Provides great uh, employment, and uh, all of the uh, food and linen, etc., comes locally, and it's locally sourced. So it's a, a great driver for the economy. The best thing about the hotel, other than the uh, economic benefits, are like the fact that all of the occupants uh, that I, I noticed, I spent we spent almost a third of a day there. All of the um, people there were all Western, all, you know, White and blue-eyed, if you will. And the hotel itself is a museum to the occupation. It's impossible. Aside from Banksy's works, there is a, 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 an actual tour that, you know, it's a self-guided tour. But you can't come away from staying at the uh, Waldorf Hotel and not... Go back evangelical in your desire to end the occupation and liberate Palestinians. So, I think a lot of people go there um, from the West say they've been, in, you know, seen some Banksy stuff, but they can't come away not, you know, suitably uh, impressed with the need to uh, do something for Palestine.
1: Did you hear people making comments to each other?
4: So the tour starts with a like a life size figure of. After Balfour signing the Balfour Declaration and a reading of it in the background, it's very quiet. It's not really a, a speaking tour. All you're doing is watching, reading, and listening. But you, you cannot, cannot do the tour and come away unmoved.
1: Did you have many conversations with people other than your family, um, Palestinians, to find out? how life is going for them, especially the impact of the Inouye money being decreased because of the US policy of pulling out money?
4: Look, no, nothing about Inouye money. I know the situation personally, but I certainly did speak to any of the shops we, we went to, the restaurants, our families, uh, many of whom you know, are in different demographic uh, situations, whether they're expatriate Palestinians or locals. There there are significant challenges in the Palestinian economy. It's impacted by freedom of movement. It's impacted by the, um, the, you know, in Bethlehem, there was hundreds of Filipino, uh, Spanish, Italian, Greek pilgrims, hundreds of them. But all of them were on Israeli tour company buses. All of them, you know, shipped straight in, you know, the quick obligatory pictures uh, at the Church of Nativity, back on the bus, straight back over the wall to Israeli Jewish-owned tourist shops. They're firmly discouraged from uh, speaking to the locals, and the the control they have over those tourists is um, Machiavellian. It really is, you know, something to, to see. From the tour guides to the, the translators, they're all working in unison to keep the group on point together, moving fast. Don't stray from the line. Take a picture. Take a selfie. Get back on the bus. We got to get out of here. And so the, the local economy suffers from the fact of not being able to, you know, sell their wares, whether it's food or trinkets or you know, crucifixes made from local olive wood. You know, they, they really struggle.
1: How did the six of you get around from city to city, town to town?
4: Um, yes, yeah, so a, a friend of mine, I got him to hire a, um, a people mover. So, so we just got a, a, a car with Israeli number plates, which means we can drive on the Israeli-only roads as well as the Palestinian goat tracks. Yeah, we were able to get around. We took turns uh, driving. By taking turns driving, I mean mostly he drove the whole way <laughs> with the occasional... Um, shared opportunity for my brother and I
1: Where would the Israeli roads lead you to?
4: So the Israeli roads obviously within uh, 48 Palestine or Israel, you know, to Hayf-e-N-A-K, uh to the, the, the far north uh, of Palestine, you can get anywhere anywhere there. Where the Israeli roads are advantageous within the West Bank is where you stay on them long enough to get off at some point to try and get to Janine or to Nablus or to to Jericho so uh, near enough to for instance Jericho is many Israeli settlements because they all are uh, dotted around the West Bank but particularly near the Jordan River so you drive on the Israeli road which is you know two or three lanes highway as good as anything we have in Melbourne at 110 kilometres an hour until you get to um, the Jericho turnoff, whereupon there's a sign that says it's forbidden for Israeli citizens to drive down here turn left and then you're now entering the city of Jericho well those roads are no longer Israeli roads they're now Palestinian roads and the road into Jericho is one of the best Palestinian roads better than most Palestinian roads in Ramallah in fact but um, depending on the size of the city as soon as you turn off the Israeli road it can be as good as the Jericho road which you know might be something you'd find in a a secondary street in Brunswick or, or, or somewhere, down to um, a dirt track that you might find in, um, you know, out of Ballarat or, or Bendigo.
1: Is there any interaction between the Palestinians and the settlers?
4: No. So the, between the settlers in, in, in the West Bank, there's very, very little interaction. I mean, the interaction that might be occurring is what we've seen over the past couple of weeks with the... Uh, start of the olive harvesting season interaction is israeli settlers masked burning olive groves cutting down olive trees attacking olive pickers that's the sort of interaction that happens between settlers and palestinians in the west bank there's very very little social interaction and the interaction that is available is inevitably hostile and directed from the israelis to the palestinians
1: and what happens when the Palestinian farmers try to stop the settlers destroying their agriculture?
4: Within seconds, the army comes and uh, the, the Palestinians are, are beaten, arrested and removed.
1: And that's their, their livelihood.
4: And that's their livelihood. And in fact, for, for many, it's the only source of income for entire families. So it's a very, very, very huge problem. But again, part of the the ongoing slow ethnic cleansing of Palestine and you know there's I, I read a term recently it's a, a politicide which is you know to create an environment that makes the place Palestine uninhabitable for Palestinians so as they choose to leave and and that's certainly um, uh, you know the, the, the feeling I got when we were in Hebron from the shopkeepers you know it was as steadfast as they were and they were just you know barely making a living selling trinkets and bits and pieces or spices. The feeling was, you know, I don't know if my kids and grandkids will stay. I'm not going anywhere, but and I hope my children don't, but I can't be sure my grandchildren won't.
5: How far
1: away from Gaza or how close to Gaza can you get?
4: So we actually drove to the hilltops where in 2014 the Israelis set up couches and chairs and Quoting the New York Times, you know they had the Gaza cinema where they sat overlooking Gaza and um, watched and uh, the nighttime bombing and the, and the light show that is uh, F-16s and Apache helicopters and gunships firing onto a captive civilian population. And even today, now almost five, well, over five years since uh, Operation Protective Edge, there's still bits and pieces of broken beer bottles and discarded cans that are around the place as well as some old plastic chairs and even even an old couch sitting on the hill. I think we got within within a kilometer of the fence.
1: what sort of a fence is it
4: well in parts it 's you know high concrete and steel and barbed wire, but what you see from from the Israeli side is the watchtowers and raised mounds that um, They've created to um, soften the look of the fence from um, the Israeli side. So, oh, oh, driving from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, uh, there's a point at its thinnest point uh, where the armistice line, the, the 49 armistice line or the green line is. There's a, a, a Palestinian town of Tulkaram. and uh, Tulkaram to Tel Aviv, it can't be more than 20 kilometres, but. The wall on, on the Tukhan side is, you know, as ugly and brutal as anything we've ever seen, you know, two, three times as high as the Berlin Wall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But on the Israeli side, what's happened is they have put landscaping and raised the dirt on the side. So you actually can't see the wall. Mm. So as you're driving along, you don't actually know that there's anything separating you from the other side. The only reason you know that there is a side is the amazing people of Turquharam have erected the biggest flag I've ever seen in my life. It's a big Palestinian flag. So as you're driving from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, you can't help but see this huge Palestinian flag flying a few kilometres away. But you can't tell. You can't see the fence. But on the other side, and we were on the other side, you see it for all its brutality, just concrete and steel and barbed wire and you know, uh, Gestapo-looking watchtowers and military troops driving
5: up and down. 3 are selling Kefya Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. <laughs> All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
1: And before that message you're listening to Nasa Machi who's a member of the team which produces. Palestine remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30 in the morning, not to be missed. And we'll be hearing later on in the program from Bruce Francis, who is probably just about in Palestine at the moment.
4: you can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy
3: or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop.
0: Get a piece of your own history on sale for just
4: $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
1: the newest campaign for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War in collaboration with ICANN. International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons is Quit Nukes. It will be officially launched this Thursday, the 24th of October. It's a divestment campaign, and to explain more, I'm joined by Dr Margie Beavis, the National Secretary of MAPW. Just before that, appears that MAPW is getting involved in quite a lot of campaigns at the moment. Very busy.
7: Yes, look, um, it's certainly really busy at the moment. We have um, a really wonderful new executive officer in Elise West who's really energetic and hardworking and creative and thoughtful and she's been a real breath of fresh air. We also have a really good committee at the moment and um, it's really a pleasure to work with them. And it's really good, to, there's so much so much to work on and it's really good to have the opportunity to do that. It's really um, yeah, it's
1: very good. Well, this, one, this campaign we're going to talk about now, we did briefly talk about it a month or so ago, but it's now coming to fruition. It's called yes. Quick Nukes. Tell us about it.
7: Well, Quick Nukes is basically designed to encourage superannuation funds here in Australia to get rid of their investments in nuclear weapons. It's really interesting because, in fact, there's actually currently... Most people would have no idea that their superannuation is going to nuclear weapons companies or some of it. If you look at who doesn't send money to nuclear weapons companies, there's only three that definitely don't. That's Australian Ethical Superannuation, Future Superannuation, and then Bank Australia, which is a relatively new bank. They don't invest in nuclear weapons at all. And this is tremendous because it's it's looking at... There is a new norm developing internationally around why should our money go to these weapons that are so appalling and and that it should actually be when you're investing it should be common sense that this is the default option. It's a lot of people, and I I think some superannuation companies also who have gone to, what superannuation companies often do is they'll go to what's called an index provider or or another investment firm that gives them a group of, of investments that they can just purchase, you know, have so much in this type of investment, so much of that type of investment. And often they have said that they'll exclude controversial weapons. What is apparent is that most Australian superannuation companies, even the ones that have signed up not to invest in a group called controversial weapons, when you look at the actual definition for the investment managers of what a controversial weapon is, it doesn't have nuclear weapons in it, which is just astonishing. And because it doesn't have nuclear weapons, that means that these companies that this still investments going into nuclear weapons. And I think some superannuation company fund managers themselves would be unaware that the controversial weapons does not exclude nuclear weapons. So what we're trying to do is make this, as I said, the new norm uh, that the default option should be that you are not investing in nuclear weapons. And if people want to invest in nuclear weapons, then there should be a, a specialist group of what we call index that people can go and invest in controversial weapons if they wish to but, um, or they can invest directly in companies like Lockheed Martin who make these appalling weapons. But it's really we're going around to superannuation companies to just let them know that it's important that they specifically uh, make sure that they are excluding nuclear weapons and that this means that their customers, the default option is not to have some of their money in nuclear weapons.
1: And of course, people, workers, don't have a say now, do they? Their their money goes into a superannuation fund, whether they want it or not. And if the fund doesn't do the right thing by them, well, what do they do? I think it's easier to change between funds now than it used to be.
7: What people can do is if they, what would be really helpful for us, although we're not doing it from the bottom up, but it's really useful if people write their super... just email, drop an email to the supervision registered- and say, what is your policy on nuclear weapons? If they come back and say, oh, we exclude them because we exclude controversial weapons, you can say, please send me the definition of new controversial weapons that you use. Alternatively, if they want to get right into the nuts and bolts of it, they can go through a report called the Don't Bank on the Bomb Report, which came out last week. It's put together by PAX in the Netherlands. And what this does is it looks at which companies are the companies that should not be invested there's eighteen companies globally that work on nuclear weapons by either manufacturing or helping getting them out into the field. And so if people want to go to the Don't Bank of the Bomb report, they can forward that list of eighteen companies. Or in fact what's probably simpler is come to the new Quick Nukes, which is our project, and that has the list of eighteen companies up on our website. So you can say you can say to your superannuation company, what's your policy? Do you exclude these companies? If not, why not? And I'm leaving. And then go to somewhere like Future Super or Australian Ethical and know that your money is not going to nuclear. Some of your savings are not going to nuclear weapons.
1: Just give us another cheer for those two companies. I mean, they're doing the right thing. And also Bank Australia. It's not a really small bank anymore, but they are doing really good work.
7: Yes, fantastic. They're, you know, those, yeah, Bank Australia, Future Super, Australian Ethical, they're leading the
1: way. It's wonderful. And it's, it's really disturbing the, the amount of money that Australian super funds invest in nuclear weapons. You've got yes. the figures?
7: Yes, I think it's $15 billion. I haven't actually got the fingertips, which I should have, but I think it's $15 billion. Although in the, in the pot of money that is Australian superannuation, that's actually reasonably small and it shouldn't be difficult for them to get... I mean, it's basically 18 companies in their international portfolios. It should not be difficult for them to divest... Um, it may take a little time to get the indexes sorted. We're very excited because the index providers, who are the, are, are the investment groups that the superannuation companies go to, where they where they buy their product, if you like, where they the, the, the two very big companies have decided that they will BlackRock and um, Vanguard have decided that they will try and get their indexes out of nuclear weapons, and that's very exciting.
1: You've already been to a few companies, or you've contacted companies. What, what are their reactions?
7: Launched last Thursday, and we are approaching. They've, they've been really excited. We were at the Australian Ethical Company Prevention to their staff and their board, and at the other day the AGM, and gotten an a very enthusiastic and supportive response because they like to be recognised for the fact that they are doing the right thing, and. It's really appreciated that they are taking the lead on this
1: issue. And to get onto companies that haven't done the right thing yet, how do you go about that?
7: ANZ, Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, all have really, particularly ANZ, but all of them have really large investments in nuclear weapons. Macquarie Bank, and sadly our own future fund is really shameful in that it has a large investment in nuclear weapons and refused. We we approached them. We actually had quite a lot of fun about five years ago. We dressed up as bombs and stood outside their office and then went inside dressed as bombs. I mean, we clearly were bombs. But they say that these nuclear weapons are not illegal. What's heartening is that the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, as I've spoken to you about a few times, the one that went through the United Nations in 2017, what's exciting is we're two-thirds of the way there. We now have 33 out of the 50 signatures towards this becoming international law. And once this is international law, it will be much harder for any company and the future fund to justify having investments in these weapons because they basically nuclear weapons, again, will be like investing in chemical weapons or biological weapons. I mean, who wants their savings to be put in such an appalling sort of circumstance? So, yeah, I think so. if if people belong to ANZ, CBA, Macquarie or Westpac, you may want, again, to think about dropping an email saying them, what is their policy on investing in nuclear weapons, why do they invest in nuclear weapons, and then say, I'm leaving, I'm going to you know, Bank Australia or Bendigo Bank, and why, and tell them, because I think when people, it's, it's good to leave them, but it's even better if you tell them why you're leaving them.
1: You said Bendigo Bank then, did you mean that, or do you mean yes. Bank Australia? Yes. No,
7: bank Australia is bank Australia's the, the one we're absolutely certain of. We're, we're looking at Bendigo Bank also, because they seem to be a much more ethical bank than the others. But Bank Australia is certainly the one where we're absolutely confident there's no nuclear weapons.
1: Okay, so it looks like going to be a busy time for you, Margie.
7: <laughs> yes. Well, Just starting, for change. Starting with the um, the industry funds, because we believe they have a more... They, well, they, they're not the, what, the superannuation funds that are run for profit are less interested, I think. I think industry funds try to run an ethical approach to investing and I think we'll go and talk with their executives and hopefully board members and do what we can to sort of ask them about their policies and what they can do to improve them and just try and work together with them to get this to be, as I said, this is the new norm. It's, it's common sense that the default option should not be going into nuclear weapons. The default option should be no nuclear weapons.
1: And what happens with self-managed super funds that's, that's outside your orbit?
7: Yes, we have to bite things one at a time. (laughs) (laughs) There's only so many hours in the day. And we did look, in fact, we looked at the the number of superannuation companies even before you get to self-managed super and had to make a strategic decision about which ones we were going to approach there because, again, you have to sort of do it in a way that you're going to get the most response, you think, for the energy you put in.
1: Okay. Thanks, Margie. Thanks a lot, Jan. And that was Dr. Margie Beavis, the National Secretary of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And the Quit Nukes campaign has to thank the Jesse Street Trust for funding and also Margaret Perrell, a retired finance expert in helping with information about superannuation funds. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations
8: have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The Campaign to Protect Country is led by
7: Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support.
5: You can help
9: by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by
3: donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit
8: dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty.
1: Earlier in the program we heard from Nasser Marchni talking about his recent family visit to Palestine. Now to a visit that's happening as we speak. Before he left, Bruce Francis former manager of 3CR and a member of the board of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, spoke with me in the studio here. And he began by talking briefly about his previous visit a couple of years ago, which was organised, as this present one is, by the British Amos Trust. I asked him how that came about. By
8: accident, really. Random Facebook post which came up saying they were doing this walk it seemed interesting, so we made contact and they responded and then we had a couple of conversations and decided to go.
1: And, of course, it's not just a walk, is it? There's lots of other things that they do for Palestine.
8: Yeah, yeah. They, they work extensively in Palestine, doing numerous bits and pieces, supporting some of the civil society groups that are there, doing some stuff around the help organise. They do a lot of, I guess, education around Palestine They have house building tours, they have food tours, they have, you know, other tours which are sort of more sort of educational tours. And they work with um, young people and with women in particular. So, yeah, they do a range of work in um, Palestine.
1: So, why did you choose this particular walk?
8: Uh, The walk was a combination of two things. One, it, you know, had a, a, a very strong political education aspect to it. So that each, each day we walked with a different group, a different local group. Some days we walked from, you know, one refugee camp to the next, to the next, to the fourth one. Start with, you know, a, a sort of discussion at the first one and ended up with dinner at the fourth one. So it was really about the opportunity to mix with a whole lot of Palestinians and, you know, really get a feel for what it was like on the ground. And it wasn't a continuous walk. It was go to a spot and then walk for a purpose in terms of actually finding out about what was actually going on.
1: What did you believe that you were going to get out of this second one?
8: There's probably a little bit of nostalgia about the first one, um, so that's good. For me, this one walks t- from the very north of Palestine to down to Jericho, which is largely an area where we haven't been. So we have, you know, spent one night in Nablus and we have been to Jericho a few times, or passed through Jericho a few times, because that's on the point of coming in from Jordan. But the rest of that northern bit, really, we don't know. So it's about going to see something that's different.
1: You've done your research?
8: Ah, a little bit. (laughs) Nothing like the joy of surprise. Yeah, so it's sort of more fertile right up in the north. Janine is an interesting place for me and there's interesting things that have happened up there Um, It'll be interesting to see and I guess it was, you know, another opportunity to walk Although this time it will be a continuous walk rather than bits and pieces But not too difficult a walk in that we won't need to carry big packs
1: And of course you're only coming from the north of Palestine The other people on the walk are coming from
8: where? No, it's just the 10 day walk. So oh, okay. So it's different to the last time. It's different to the last time, which, you know, started in London and people walked all the way. So this one is no people are coming in uh, and doing the 10 day walk. It's what's known as the Massa Ibrahim Trail, which is actually, we're walking half of it because it goes all the way down to south of Hebron. So it really goes from the north to the very south of Palestine.
1: When do you get to meet the people that you're going with? Do you have any contact before you leave or you just have a meeting once you all arrive there?
8: Um, so there was a briefing the other day at some ungodly hour, 3am in the morning, um, which I couldn't actually attend because I was in Canberra doing something else <laughs> and they did to be sharp at 9 o'clock in the morning. So. But yeah, there was a briefing where you know, most of the people who were going came. Uh, we all meet up in Chenin, um, the night before the walk um, and then start the walk the next day. There's about 40 of us, um, so it's a big group. I mean, it's one of the things we found really enjoyable about the last one was actually going with a big group uh, and just hearing about all the different people's engagement with Palestine, how that came about, what they were doing, what they intended to do. So it was nice sort of walking with people who you had that sort of stuff in common with.
1: You've got no idea of where the people are coming from?
8: They'll mainly be English. Um, uh, last time it was largely a lot of people from the north of England, a lot of people who already have some sort of a, uh, engagement or solidarity that they do with Palestine. So I'm envisaging that we will meet up with um, you know, a few local organisations, but not to the extent of last time, but uh, also this time we'll do a lot more staying with people, so there's a lot more homestays, uh, there was quite a few homestays that was, weren't, weren't any last time.
1: What was it like with the Israeli soldiers last time and checkpoints and how different do you think it'll be this time?
8: Well, who knows, um, you know. What was it
1: like last time?
8: Well, it's always well. Last time, in fact, getting in was easier than the time before, uh, mainly because they'd separated out the internationals from the Palestinians, and so it was pretty, you know, straight through for the internationals. I mean, I think the worst. It's still a very unpleasant experience, even as uh, a, a white person from a white male from you know another country. Um, is
1: it intimidation? Is that what, it's, what it is?
8: Oh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's intimidatory in, just in terms of the structures, the fact that people have guns, um, the fact that people are behind screens, uh, the fact that you, you're called up, you go through sort of what I'd refer to as cattle grids. That sort of stuff's you know, pretty unpleasant, really, yeah, even if it's straightforward. But And the fact that it only happens to... One part of the population makes it pretty intimidatory.
1: And what happened to the Palestinians? How did they get through?
8: Well, we didn't see this time because we didn't go that way. Uh, look, I think people get through on the whole, but, you know, it's a longer wait. It's a slow process. It, it's not a very pleasant f- process for people to go through.
1: What are you most looking forward to?
8: Uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what the north is like. I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, meeting the locals and staying with people and stuff. Really looking forward to working out, um, you know, how things have changed since I was there last time, and you know whether, you know, what that looks like now, how hopeful people are or unhopeful people are, etc. I'm really looking forward to go to Janine for some reason. I've, I've had this sort of thing about Janine and stuff. Uh, so...
1: What is it about Janine?
8: Well, you know, one of my favourite books is called Morning in Janine. So, um, you know, that's a sort of a start. Yeah, so I think that's part of it. Um, but, you know, we'll go and spend a bit of time in Ramallah as well. And, you know, I really like Ramallah. Um, it's an easy place for a Westerner to, to live or to visit. So that'll be good and it'll be good to get a bit of a feel then of how the sort of the more elite of Palestinian to sort of the political life sort of are feeling and the, what the sort of the vibe is like in Ramallah.
1: So it's a lot freer for the people of Ramallah? Yeah.
8: Um, I mean that's where most of the international organisations uh, have their headquarters. It has a much more Western lifestyle um, I guess um, There's a lot of influence coming in and out Of Ramallah, Whereas some of the other areas I think um, because of the Ongoing nature of the occupation Have become sort of possibly more conservative Than they were
1: How's your language going?
8: Struggling Are you, are <laughs> you studying again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah um, I'm quite good on the Arabic alphabet um, so, uh, But you've got to put it together yeah, 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 when I put it together then I don't know what it says <laughs> But it does mean, you know, if I take my time I can usually work out how a word sounds And if I can recognise then what the word is then I'll know what it is which is sort of useful in terms of, you know, when you go and you're sort of looking for a bus and you want to know where the bus goes, you can sort of spell it out and work out that you're most likely heading in the right direction. So, which given I don't have much of a sense of direction, it's a pretty good thing. So I'm
1: just thinking that as long as people don't, as long as people don't talk to you and want an answer back, you'll be right. <laughs> That's
8: right. <laughs> Not more than hello and thank you, really, at this point in time in terms of... Um, Some of the sounds are amazing. I mean, it's the most beautiful language. The script is amazing, but, you know, even learning the letters, there are 26 letters in the Arabic language, of which each is written in a different form, depending on whether it's the beginning, the middle, or the end of a word. You know, there's various, you know, letters that you can't join with other letters from the left, but it's still the one word. There are sort of all sorts of, you know... Funny rules like there is in English But one of the key little snippets is that they have what they call three short vowels Which uh, are only ever written for children <laughs> uh, And adults are just expected to know which one it is Whether it's A, E or u. And um, I think, you know, on the scale of knowing that I'm about a two-year-old
1: What are you able to buy or, or purchase to support the economy of Palestine While you're there Well I mean
8: Palestinians are or,
1: they, or do they rather see you being there As support And that's enough
8: Clearly people see you as being there As support I mean the last time or both times we've been there have been just blown away People in the street saying Hello welcome to Palestine where are you from And just clearly delighted That you're there um, And you know that that says a lot in itself, that you got yourself there. On the other hand, I mean, there is, Palestinians are uh, extremely well-educated and extremely good business people. Within the confines of being occupied, they, you know, it's, they have an economy that, you know, has all sorts of things for sale. Interesting markets, you know, lots of shops and sort of stuff. I guess there's, you know, the the two things which we're particularly excited about are the Palestinian glass down in Hebron and, again, in Hebron, uh, the last factory that makes Palestinian scarves are the kefirs which are we import and sell in Australia. So we'll go to both those businesses and uh, continue to, you know, try and support them.
1: And how is the factory going, as far as you know? OK, I mean,
8: I think... Um, They've had some difficulties getting particular yarns. You you order a particular colour in a uh, kefir and you uh, end up with another (laughs) colour. But that's about what's available. But they still go, they still produce. um, They still make stuff which is of very fine quality um, and delightful to wear. But it'll be interesting to be there and find out firsthand you know, how things are actually going.
1: You said just before you wouldn't have to t- carry your supplies with you like last time. How do you get on with that sort of thing?
8: So as in last time, there'll be a bus that'll accompany us. Uh, and because we end up in one village after another, um, rather than you know, camping out in the wilderness, the bus will take our stuff to where we're staying. Um, so all we need to do is carry the date back.
1: So you're going to have a wonderful time. You're going to see all the different scenery and you're going to meet a, an awful lot of Palestinian people. Hopefully. That's,
8: that's the plan.
1: Thanks, Bruce. And we we'll look forward to Bruce coming back. He's back in Australia, I think, the end of November. I must give one more plug for the Kefia sta- scars because Bruce and his partner import them here to sell and many of them have sold through 3CR.
5: Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
1: And this is the last news from the IMAC blockade today. This was recorded earlier today with a legal advisor, Observer.
9: So we're seeing really hectic scenes down here at the Convention Centre particularly as registration has now opened. We're seeing more of the delegates trying to enter the building. Um, there being um, protesters are chanting at times trying to block them entering. And what we're seeing is police coming in, um, snap squads of four, six, eight police officers at the time, targeting individuals, pushing them to the ground, using excessive force in doing so. Just before OC foam was deployed against a crowd of people, whilst about eight police officers were holding one protester down. Earlier today, we saw police horses being used as a form of crowd control, pushing right up against a crowd that was blockading the front of the entrance in a way that is inherently dangerous and a really inappropriate use of police horses as crowd control. Right. And so how is it for you as a legal observer? Are you in any danger? So we're really shocked to see the amount of violence and the excessive use of force that we're seeing and there's so much happening at different places that it's really difficult for our team to be observing everything that is that is happening here so we're also concerned that legal observers have been pushed by police while we are monitoring when our role is to you know observe to ensure that people can exercise our rights to peaceful protest um, I'll leave it to the protest organisers to put a call out for um, more people to come down.
1: And of course, there is a call out for people to go down tomorrow, and that was one of the many legal observers at the IMARC blockade. Recently, Anti Poverty Week was declared, and the statistics are appalling when you consider that Australia is a wealthy country. Estimates of 100,000 people homeless and I'm quite sure there'll be many more than that. Many living in poverty through inadequate pensions and wages, people unable to afford adequate medical and dental care. So if we're a wealthy country, where is the money going? Increasingly, the finger is pointed at our spending on war preparation, not to protect Australians, but to serve the United States, followed by the rich paying little tax and foreign ownership maybe no tax. Bevan Ramston is a member of IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. I don't think most people are aware of the extent that our taxes are going towards military spending, and that military spending is mostly geared to helping the US fight their wars. Yes,
10: I agree with that, Jan. This is a problem for Australia with this close alliance we have with the United States. Now, the United States, through Trump, has um, more or less demanded that its allies spend 2% or more of their gross domestic product on military acquisitions. Now, that meant the um, Liberal Coalition government has raised the uh, level of spending, and we're now going to spend $200 billion in the next 10 years on military Acquisitions such as the F-35 joint strike fighter, submarines, destroyers and what have you, one has to ask whether this huge expenditure is really necessary and what motivates it. That's a lot of the taxpayers' money and are we really under any sort of military threat? The last Defence White uh, paper stated quite categorically, no less than three times because I read it right through, um, that they saw no military threat to Australia in the foreseeable future. So if that is their assessment, why spend so much of public money on um, these military acquisitions?
1: What concerns me is, and I don't know whether it's part of your brief there, is that by the time these ships submarines, whatever are built, they're obsolete.
10: Well that's another aspect of it Jan. Very true, i read articles that say the same thing, that the submarines when they're finally do arrive will be out of date and so what we're really doing is financing the military industrial complex to keep them going first of all we don't really need them we don't aren't under threat and secondly they could be obsolete or something obsolete by the time we get them so this is terrible use of public money when there's so much distress in the community
1: well if you're talking about 200 billion over 10 years that's 20 billion a year what yes. could that $20 billion be put to, in your view?
10: Firstly, uh, uh, in the anti-poverty week, which was a week, uh, week or two ago, uh, it was stated that there's, there's a desperate need for new start uh, allowance to go up by $75 a week. Uh, start is for unemployed people who are seeking work, and I reckon it's really, it really is stressing at the moment the level it is. Now, that $75 a week for all the new start allowance people would mean $3.9 billion, $3.9 billion, which is a, a small part of that uh, large defence spending. The Australian Institute has calculated what $5 billion could finance, and they said $5 billion could finance 50 new primary schools plus 50 new secondary schools with 3,500 extra teachers plus three regional hospitals with an extra 2,500 nurses and 1,500 doctors. Now, that's what $5 billion could finance in that area. And as I say, 3.9 could fund Newstart allowance for everyone on that allowance of uh, increase of $75 a week, which is what they're calling for.
1: And then, of course, if you've got people, you're, you're building new schools, new hospitals, new whatever, you're employing people, you don't need so many people on new start.
10: <laughs> that's exactly right. That that's all goes towards... Uh, reducing social need, and as well as addressing it, reducing the expenditure. It also provides employment, and employed people pay money into the the, the tax fund. So uh, that's all positive on that side, whereas the military acquisitions, apart from helping to finance the military-industrial complex, which I don't think it's a a social requirement of us to do so, (laughs) apart from doing that, it's money down the drain.
1: Is there any joy from the Labor Party in this issue?
10: The Labor Party has criticised some of the tax policies of Scott Morrison, but I don't know that there was—I don't remember a commitment to raising the START allowance at all, or the pensioners actually. I don't think that was in the last Labor Party uh, uh, program, but I can't be sure of that. Jane, I wasn't closely associated with it.
1: What about the two percent of spending on military? What's the Labor Party's policy on that?
10: This is a bit of a real worry because the Labor Party could be said, to be joined at the hip with the Liberal Party on the military side of things. That is, they support the US alliance up to the hilt. They support what Trump says in terms of spending money and engaging with him in these uh, military activities. They support the US Marines in Darwin and practising with the US for war with China or anyone else. One of the terrible things at the moment in Australian politics is that with the two major parties having an almost exact policy on foreign affairs, like the alliance and the military spending and so on, there's no room for debate. It doesn't stimulate debate in the community. It tends to suppress that sort of discussion.
1: Well, the other issue that needs to be tackled is the tax system. I mean, wage earners get it taken out before they see it. Yes. When you've got businesses, well, for many of them, it's optional, isn't it?
10: Well, that's very interesting because um, I was reading um, in a book recently that um, in a recent tax year, 681 corporations in Australia paid no tax at all, which means that one Australian worker, on, say, 50000 a year, pays about nine, 000, ten thousand 10000 in tax. One Australian worker paid more tax than 681 corporations and that is totally unfair and amongst those were Qantas who took $15 billion and paid no tax. The Nissan Motor Company took $4 billion and paid a laughable $467 in tax and so it goes on. If the big corporations were made to pay their fair share of the tax, it would go a long way to raising the revenue which we need to fund social need. And um, Just to talk about Scott Morrison's recent tax policies, he's talked about tax cuts, but they provide actual uh, gifts to the big, big earners. For example, people with incomes over 200,000, which is a pretty fair income, they will get a gift of 64 billion through the tax cut policies of Scott Morrison. The four big banks will get $39.5 billion a gift over the next 10 years. And the Commonwealth Bank, which was once publicly owned and is now, by the way, 60% American owned, the Commonwealth Bank, will get $2.5 billion as a gift from these tax cut policies. So, you know, if the tax policies were geared the right way, the public income would certainly be, public revenue would be certainly much larger. Probably more money could be raised through that avenue than even cutting military spending to meet, you know, social need.
1: Just wondering what happens in New Zealand, what their policies are, part of the ANZUS treaty. Do they have to give 2% of their the GDP to the government as well, for military?
10: I will say that New Zealand does seem to have more progressive policies than Australia. Right.
1: Well, what's to be done?
10: That's what we're after, isn't it? I mean, the government has to find public funds to meet the social media. We're going to do something, they're going to do something about it. and. Uh, So priorities have to be changed and two of the major areas I think is the military spending and tax. The military spending level cannot be justified in view of Australia's current or foreseeable strategic needs. So we have to stand up to the US on this and not go raising the the amount of military spending up to this arbitrary level that they've set at 2% and of course keep out of their wars and look after ourselves. So that relationship with the US also impacts right down the line on our ability to meet social need. And as I just said before about the tax policies, they definitely need to be restructured to make the rich pay, to put it bluntly, to pay their taxes, um, because at the moment it's the workers who are carrying the country on their shoulders. Well, we need a government for the people, not for a government for foreign-owned corporations or one which is subservient to a foreign power like the USA. But it's a huge effort, Jan, to, to make this change when you've got, in the, in the military area, you've got uh, the Labor Party having similar policies. It's, it means grassroots, huge grassroots effort to, to push them into a different position and make them realise they've got to change their line. When The climate change protests have been huge they're going to have to be huge, even bigger to, to get any effect. But we need those sorts of movements to make the the, the, the major parties... Um, Stand up and listen, I think.
1: How is IPAN organising to try and bring these issues to the public?
10: Well, that's a very timely question. We're in the process at the moment of next year organising a public inquiry into the uh, costs and consequences of the US alliance on the Australian community. And it's to be a very broad inquiry, which we'd like to draw in submissions from the welfare section as well as from the trade unions, from peace groups, uh, to look at just how that relationship is distorting our um, priorities and spendings and also the impact, like, the guys that fight these wars. They come back often with, with, with uh, mental disorders, with PTSD, apart from other injuries, which impacts on their family and their life on the future. That's all part of the consequences of this alliance with the US and the military Wars we go off to, so we're hoping to to draw public attention through a public inquiry with some eminent people involved in writing the final reports to draw attention to the impact of that alliance on our social, social well-being.
1: It's just increasing and increasing the inequalities in our society, isn't
10: it? Well, it is. Uh, if the government doesn't have the people's best interest, but is a slave or subservient to foreign power, like the US, it distorts their thinking all the time. It's not only the, the alliance, it's the, the, the major corporations, the big, the big fellas in town, which have a big lobbying influence on the government. A large percentage of those are American-owned now too. In fact, I think in Clinton Fernandez's book recently, he pointed out that of the 20 largest companies on the stock exchange, and they represent half the total capitalisation of the stock exchange. Of the top 20, three quarters are foreign American owned. Three of them were 25% owned. So that American lobby also, which um, has an influence, a big influence, I think, on government policies, that means tax policies too, and that means uh, public revenue.
1: It's a big battle, isn't it? It's got to be be faced.
10: And you're doing a good job there, (laughs) making it known. And 3CR does a great job in keeping these issues in front of people. Thank
1: you, Jan. Thank you, Bevan. And that's Bevan Ramsden. And some people might know that Bevan was one of the people who helped set up 3CR back in the 1970s. now with IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network in Newcastle. And it's 5.34. And this is Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR. It's been well-named, Palvember. It even starts in October. It's to celebrate Palestinian culture, activism, and determination to spread the word for the rights of Palestinian people. A number of groups are hosting various events, including Australian Palestine Advocacy Network (APAN), Australians for Palestine, Beit Jala Palestine Association, Casey Friends for Palestine, and the Palestine Community Association of Victoria. And there's something happening just about every day in November. With me in the studio is Jessica Morrison, the Executive Officer of APAN, a position she's occupied for over eight years now. Jessica, the Global Gardens of Peace fundraiser for Lockhart River Artists has already occurred. But the next event is the Palestinian Film Festival here at the Nova Cinema from the 31st of October to the 5th of November. That's been going for quite a few years now, hasn't it? It's
6: been going for 10 years now. It is really exciting to have an opportunity to profile such amazing Palestinian films and such diverse films. One of the films, It Must Be Heaven, that is showing, I saw at the Melbourne International Film Festival and it is quirky and beautiful and really creative cinematography. And then there's kind of much more concrete storytelling work based in the West Bank and often there's animations and so there's all sorts of different things and this year with most of the screenings there's a full feature film and a short film. So you get to see a couple of different things at each of the screenings. So that's on at Cinema Nova starting this Thursday the 31st. And how many films all together? There are a lot. There are 17 films in total being shown. I'm not sure if they're all being shown in Melbourne because it's a national film festival. That's right. It's going all around the country in uh, Tasmania even this year, which is really exciting. So, yeah.
1: And it's over six days, so there's plenty of
6: films to choose from, there's plenty of times
1: of day that people can go
6: Absolutely, absolutely, yes and then on the evening of the 5th of November there's a really exciting event um, where Indigenous films and Palestinian films are going to be shown together, short films, a number of them and then there's going to be conversation between Palestinian and Ind- Indigenous activists talking about the role of film in solidarity movements so that's on the 5th of November in the evening at Cinema Nova which is the first side event um, of the Black Palestine Solidarity Conference, which officially kicks off that next day. How long's that been going? Well, the Black Palestine Solidarity Conference. Well. This is its first feature iteration in the world. So last year at Columbia University, they had an evening, Black Palestine Solidarity, and they looked at the connections between the Black Panther movement, the Palestine Solidarity movement, and how that had come through over time. And certainly in the US, the Black Lives Matter and the Palestinian Solidarity movements have been quite connected, and they're much better at what we're now calling intersectionality and we used to call kind of solidarity... So that kind of happened in the US and one of the organisers was here in, in Melbourne last year and Gary Foley heard her speak. And was really deeply inspired and reminded him of the times in decades past where he and Ali Kazak had done stuff at Monash University together. And so he's worked um, with PhD students, Susanna Henty, and they've put together this amazing conference, several day conference, where there's people coming from all across the globe and all around Australia to talk about these connections of decolonizing kind of settler colonial movements in Palestine and Indigenous Australia and how those struggles are connected. And who are the Palestinians who are going to be part of it? Well, one of the keynote speakers um, and she's giving a, a public lecture on the Thursday night, um, so everybody's welcome to come. So the conference runs Wednesday through Friday during the day, um, but Wednesday night there's a public lecture and Thursday night there's a public lecture and then on the weekend there's a couple of side events too. So we've made sure that with these amazing international guests there's a few opportunities to, to listen to them. So a couple of the Palestinians, um, there's Rabab Abdulhadi who is a feminist activist originally from Nablus, um, in the north of the West Bank and she is now uh, based in the U.S., um, but she writes particularly about Palestinian struggle and the, its connections with, with feminist struggles as well. So she's one of the people coming. Um, and then uh, Nadia Ben Youssef is also coming, who's a human rights lawyer and advocate. Um, she's also based in the U.S. and she's worked with Adalah, which is an amazing legal rights organisation based in Israel, but, but led by Palestinians, but predominantly thinking about Palestinian rights within Israel. That's a real coup, isn't it, to get it to Melbourne? It is really exciting and, you know, kudos to Gary Foley for all the work to kind of have the vision go big and large. I mean, yeah, so there's a hope that that will go to Palestine next year as well and that that will be a kind of movement that uh, continues. And how do people get to be there? You can register as for the Black, if you look at Google Black, Palestine Solidarity Conference. Most of the details are on a Facebook page. All the events that we're talking about are all being profiled on the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network page, which is apan.org.au. So that's probably the easiest place to go to for everything, apan.org.au, and all the information that we're talking about will be accessed through there.
1: Just talk briefly about the Penn International Day of the Imprisoned Writer. And the key speaker there
6: is Samar Sabawi. Just introduce her. Oh, Samari's a wonderful Melbourne-based playwright, but she also engages much more broadly than plays. She's um, done some wonderful broadcasting. Yeah, so Samar Sabari is a wonderful activist who's predominantly worked through screenplays and has, has put on some beautiful plays at La Mama Theatre here in Melbourne. But she also writes. She's just finishing a PhD at the moment and is really aware about what happens when you talk about particular things in the public domain, and she's had some terrible experience about people trying to shut her work down. So it's really exciting to have a Palestinian voice with the others um, for that event at the Wheeler Centre on the 14th of November. And then the next day... And then the next day Is Palestine National Day um, Which commemorates the day When Yasser Arafat Declared kind of A Palestinian independence And, and said we're sick of waiting For Israel and the, the International community To kind of formally do this We're going to As Israel had done Many decades before We're going to declare Our own independence And so Palestine National Day Is on the 15th of November And for four years now Federation Square Raises the Palestinian flag Much to the of the Zionists in Melbourne? Yeah, there was um, uh, David Southwick last year got really um, crabby about the fact that the Palestinian flags had, had risen over Melbourne and there was quite a lot of Twitter discussion about what exactly he found offensive About the Palestinian flag rising, because of course, on on the 15th of May, on the 14th of May, sorry, uh, the Israeli flag flies over Federation Square and all sorts of other days other national flags fly. But this is really significant, because what Palestinians have been asking for for many years is just to be recognised as an equal among nations. That's all they're asking for. So it's really exciting to symbolically have that happen on the 15th of November where the flags are raised. And of course, it's an amazing. Amazingly exciting day for Palestinians to see... That recognition. So every year we've had a festival, a little mini festival to celebrate. This year we've got the main stage at Federation Square. Um, so we got too big last year and they were very nervous about our numbers. So And people love to dance dub care for ages and ages. So we've booked the main stage. We've got some poets coming to give some poetry. And then there will be some wonderful dub care dancing as well as Palestinian food and kefirs and other Palestinian goods. So it's kind of like a little market, mini market celebration what time does it start starting off at 5 30 um, and then we will raise the final flag so you will see seven flags already raised raised and flying all day and then we'll symbolically have some children raise the final flag just after 5 30 and then we will celebrate i bet you will the dancing is it special the palestinian dancing yeah, well, I think um, anything that celebrates life is a wonderful thing. And um, the Palestinian dance, Dubkir, which is not too difficult to learn, and I always really enjoy having a crack at it myself. Um, and it's kind of one of those line dances where, where you're kicking and so forth. And, yeah, so it's, again, it's a one of those symbols of of not just surviving but thriving and celebrating all that is Palestinian. So, yeah, Dubkir dancing is wonderful, and there's some cute. So will be doing some dub care dancing but in melbourne there's also this group called Jaffra dance group who do the most energetic exciting dub care i've ever seen anywhere in the world um so we're really excited to have them there and then then we all get to have a chance to have a go and then of course having it at federation
1: square at that time of early evening and later evening you're drawing people who are getting off the trains getting off the trams To see what is Palestine.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And this is a Friday night, Friday the 15th of November at Federation Square. Um, So we're really excited to have kind of showcase the beauty of Palestinian culture. And we're not having to fight anything. We're not having to protest anything. We're just there to celebrate what is and what has survived and thrived despite all the challenges.
1: And then there's also the celebration a couple of days later with the
6: run or the walk. That's right. Um, so on the 17th of November in the Botanical Gardens is the Run for Palestine, which also started in Melbourne and has gone national. And so there's all sorts of runs for Palestine happening all over Australia on that day. Um, so, yes, you can run and there are some people who do take it quite seriously or you can have a stroll around the Botanical Gardens as well. So, you know, there's people from kind of time trialling themselves uh, all the way through to people having a natter while they push prams along. And, of course, there are a lot of other people
1: there. So you're identified by wonderful T-shirts,
6: yeah, so there's wonderful T-shirts that have got Run for Palestinian Human Rights on them. Um, and so it's fantastic to just stand in the botanical gardens. I actually haven't run myself yet, but to watch all the people running and walking emblazoned with these T-shirts Run for Palestine. So it's a really amazing just, again, taking Palestine into everyday Melbourne, um, which is really exciting. It also raises money. So it's a wonderful fundraiser to send some money back to Palestine.
1: And to top it all off, you're going to Victorian Parliament House. That's for right. That's right. A dinner. Now, That's how right. do
6: you get into Victorian Parliament House? Well, anybody's welcome to book. Um, you can be sponsored by parliamentarians or members of the public able to book. But yes. it's a night dedicated to Palestine in yep. the dining room. That's right. In Queen's Hall in Victorian Parliament House. Palestine is also in the halls of power. And that's, I think, what's so exciting about November. There's an opportunity to, to jump into Federation Square and have a, a casual dance. You can sit in Cinema Nova and watch a film. You can have a run or a walk for Palestine. Or you can go in your most beautiful gown or trousers and celebrate Palestine in the, in the heart of Parliament House. So this is a second Jerusalem Peace Prize which is, again, a statement about Jerusalem being connected to Palestine. And it's a statement about Palestine Palestine being recognised and acknowledged in all places. So this is the second time it's running, the 22nd of November. Anthony Lowenstein, who's an amazing Jewish journalist and author, written some really amazing stuff about anti-capitalist movements around the world but and, and, and has predominantly focused on Israel and Palestine. So he's been awarded the prize this year. And, um, so Stuart Rees, who, um, was the inaugural winner, he will present the prize to Anthony this year.
1: And of course, as with Samar, you stick up for Palestine. And the knives come out. That's right. Same is with
6: Anthony. Yeah, yeah. Look, Anthony, and I think, and I think, hats off particularly to Jewish allies because the attacks that come to them are deeply personal and often very intimate in terms of family family relationships. And the Lowenstein family in general, have suffered a lot because of Anthony's strong statements. And his book, My Israel Question, um, which I've just read actually in the last month, he talks a lot about what it meant for him um, in terms of extended family relationships and what it's cost him. So Anthony has been um, vilified in many different places, but his journalism, you know, is an attacked for his work per se, but, but that he dares to speak. And has was talking about others you can get onto the web page and book that's right absolutely so that is a black tie event and it is costed accordingly and there are not a lot of seats so it would be wonderful for those who could afford it and who would like to dress up in their black ties to buy tickets for the jerusalem peace prize uh, you can find the links there at the apan website the australia-palestine advocacy network website which is apan.org.au Talk for a few minutes about your role with APAN. I am the executive officer of APAN um, and have been for over eight years now. So I do count myself as one of the luckiest people in Australia because I'm paid to advocate for something that I'm passionate about. Um, So APAN is a coalition of Palestinians and non-Palestinians. I'm a non-Palestinian, so my role is to be in solidarity with the struggle. So we try and do all sorts of things. We clearly support all the amazing grassroots work that's happening all over Australia. And we've been really excited that in the last year or so there's been two new groups established, Tasmanian Friends of Palestine and the Territorians for Palestine who are up in the Northern Territory. So it's really exciting to support all the grassroots work and to amplify the work of things like the Palestinian Film Festival or the Jerusalem Peace Prize or the Run for Palestine to help get the word out about those things. So one of our foundational pieces of work is is that. The second thing that we do is try and engage with the media because that's harder for grassroots to do. And there's a whole lot of proactive work in terms of the media that we need to do to make sure that they have an understanding about what's going on and not just a feeble notion that they have to report on both sides. So, I mean, earlier this year we had um, a delegation that went to the Press Gallery in Parliament House in Canberra and we have led a study tour of journalists to Palestine. So it's thinking proactively about how we can engage with the media, how we can build relationships and, and lots of those things happen behind the scenes. Um, so journalists might ring us and ask us what we think. Um, which may or may not get on the on the media, but we 're hoping that that influences the story and I think it would be fair to say that we 've seen a shift in a number of media outlets to be more balanced, not all of them and we 've been really disappointed that the Murdoch press big surprise to nobody <laughs> has been terrible in terms of only printing one side of the story. So that's the second thing we try and do and, and look at ways to get the story out, not only through the me- mainstream media and the corporate media but also other ways of engaging the media and social media and we're really enjoying getting creative on social media at the moment and finding different ways to that we can share the story and a bit like Indymedia was some years ago, it's the way that we can all and the way 3CR is now, the way that we can be the media. How do you get on with the pollies? Uh, the third main part of our work is in, in trying to engage directly around political lobbying. Of course, all the grassroots work and the media work, that's the basis of it. Um, politicians um, aren't going to listen if they don't think you've got the people power behind you. So all the grassroots work and all the media work all comes to support what happens when we walk in Parliament House in Canberra or indeed any of the other um, state parliaments. So w- we've been really excited about watching more and more politicians step out the people who were doing this sort of work 15 years ago said we used to be able to count our supporters on one hand and a one hand that had lost a couple of fingers (laughs) so it it was that to stand up for Palestine meant that you got vilified and you stood on your own whereas we um, had a joint letter from parliamentarians uh, late last year and a hundred parliamentarians in state and federal parliaments signed it It is not unusual to see 20 parliamentarians in a room supporting Palestine. And that's been really exciting to be part of. And it's not just us. There's been more and more parliamentarians who have their own convictions about it, and certainly we've supported them to speak up. But, yeah, so that's been exciting. And watching the Labor Party have a seismic cultural shift internally, where (coughs) it was four years ago now, at the national conference before the one that's just they're gone, where people said to us, something profound happened at this conference because pro-Israel crew just assumed they had won the day in Labor, whereas now we have a real debate. And at the last national conference... I would say we not only had the real debate, but we won that debate, that the right thing to do is equally recognise Palestine and Israel in a way that hasn't happened before. And previously in the Labor Party and still currently in the Liberal Party, you hear them talk about the rights of Israelis and the aspirations of Palestinians, whereas that's, that's stopped in the Labor Party now. The Labor Party are talking about the rights of two parties, as they should be. Um, so there's still work to do in the ALP, of course, but I think we have now got the, the numbers, as they say, and so we're going to keep working so that the Labor Party, when it is back in power, will do what it says it will do and stand up for Palestine. And, of course, this means some wonderful support from the Greens and the crossbenchers. So, yeah, there was um, some great speeches in the last parliamentary sitting period, as there is almost always now, and so we're excited that... That we've reached that level in a sense and it's safer po- for politicians to step up for Palestine. Yeah. And it hasn't always been. No, it certainly hasn't been. And, and it's not still universally so. I mean, Melissa Park put her hand up for a seat in the, in the last federal election and, um, she was mercilessly, um, attacked by the Murdoch press predominantly and she decided to withdraw. And so it's not universally safe. So there was Melissa who had to withdraw from the the contest because of it. But what happened after Melissa stepped down is they had a crack at Josh Wilson, who's also in WA, and then they had a crack at all the other Labor politicians who'd been to Palestine with us, Susan Templeman in in New South Wales and others, but nothing else kept going. So this kind of, they'd hoped that this would be a snowball effect and that all the other pollies who'd stood up for Palestine would get knocked down, but they didn't. I think that there's, as I say, there's a cascading work that when when you have a strong grassroots movement that are loud and proud and are out on the streets in all the events that are going on in Melbourne in November, then politicians feel that they've got more political space to work and those who are less inclined to, to step up at, feel obliged to. So, yeah, so it's it's really important for all the work um, including the work directly to Parliament House, that people are able to support all these wonderful Palestinian cultural events throughout November.
1: On a personal level, Jessica, when were you introduced to Palestine?
6: Interesting. I mean, my personal story is I was first introduced to Palestine as a religious place rather than as a political place. And my grandmother led tours to the Holy Land. We think possibly even during the first Intifada. <laughs> but the politics... Stepped her by. And, and being somebody I got really involved in, interested and passionate about non-violence and anti-militarist work, I thought, well, I've gotta, I've gotta check out Palestine. So I, I went certainly with an eye on the politics, was horrified. And as a, someone with a strong Christian religious convictions, as well as someone from Australia, I realised that two bodies that seek to speak for me, the Christian religious authorities and the Australian authorities, both speak predominantly for Israel. And so I thought, actually, I've got a skin in the game here as a white person who's benefiting in so many different ways from colonisation. I'm also benefiting from the colonisation of Palestine and the... One of the really painful things, I think, for people of of religious faith to realize is Jerusalem seen as this special holy city where Christians from all around the world, world make pilgrimages and so do Muslims and Jewish people. But there's Christian Palestinians who live 10 kilometers away from Jerusalem and they can't get in. So I visited a man I'd met many years before, an old Palestinian gentleman who lives in Bethlehem. And he loves living in Bethlehem because of the religious stories and his connection to to the faith through the land. But then I'd get in a car and I drove to Jerusalem and he couldn't come with me. So I think those sort of contradictions really hit home and uh, you know as a christian jesus lived under roman occupation and so all the stories of jesus life are about how to live and resist under occupation so they have a particular resonance and they come alive in a new way where you stand on the same streets that he was standing on he was talking about how to resist an occupation 2000 years ago and you start to think well how does that faith story and that advice given those years ago, how might that be relevant to this occupation? So in a sense, it's certainly, it, it, there is no doubt that this is a political conflict, not a religious conflict, but it's a political conflict that has religious language attached to it. So for me personally, that was, that's been really powerful.
5: Thanks, Jessica.
1: No worries. And that was Jessica Morrison, who's the Executive Officer of APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. Plenty of things to go to, see, listen to. During November, get onto their webpage, APAN, and you'll find out all about it. starts with the film festival on Thursday. Check it out. That's all from me for today. I will be back next Tuesday. No, I won't. I'll be having a day off in sympathy with all the race horses and all the horses in Australia to next Tuesday, but there will be a program. I'm not quite sure what it will be, but I'll be thinking about the horses. And I hope that many other people will do that too and, and get unhooked from the industry that is the, the gambling industry of the, the so-called racing industry and the cruelty to animals. So I'll go out with Ruby Hunter and I'll be back in a fortnight. Bye for now.